Hello, and welcome to season five of the Eccles Business Buzz podcast. I'm your host, Francis Johnson, and I'm so glad to have you back. This season, we are exploring the experience of women in the workplace, especially here in Utah. In a recent study published by WalletHub, Utah ranked as the worst state for women's equality. The study put Utah last for women in education and health and 49th in both political empowerment and workplace environment for women. The study also found that the income gap between men and women was worse in Utah than any other state and that Utah is seriously lacking when it comes to women in executive leadership positions. This season, we're going to hear from a number of powerhouse women in a lot of different industries, sharing their own challenges and their tips and advice for overcoming the roadblocks women often face in the workplace. But today, we are going to zoom out a bit and talk about the workplace more generally. Joining me today is Amelia Stilwell, Assistant Professor of Management at the David Eccles School of Business. Her research focuses on the norms and stereotypes that maintain group distinctions and inequality. And today we'll be chatting about her research related to voice in the workplace and how it influences inclusivity and psychological safety for women and other marginalized groups. Amelia, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Well, let's dive right in, Amelia, and start off with you defining this idea of voice as it relates to the workplace. What does it mean when we say voice in the workplace? What are we talking about? Voice is discretionary communication that employees engage in to improve the workplace. So things like suggesting improvements for the customer experience or raising the alarm that a product is faulty or has a safety issue. Oftentimes, employees are really on the front line of where a product or service is being created. And so they know first when there's an issue that a company needs to address in order to continue being profitable or prevent an important safety issue that could lead to later recalls. But an important part of that is it's discretionary. So people have to choose to speak up and share this information or else leaders in the company don't get an opportunity to act on it. When we're talking about this discretionary communication, we're not only talking about something related to what the business does, right? So we're not only talking about a faulty product or an employee speaking up about some kind of process. We're also talking about the factors in the corporate culture or the company environment that impact employees as well. Absolutely. Because they are also the first ones in the first line of defense in understanding what that culture is like. And research shows over and over again that the way we do work impacts our outcomes in the end. What the product looks like, how good it is, how profitable it is, whether it's meeting our customer needs. And so the process that we use as organizations to work with each other, to coordinate our teams, to lead employees and engage in decision-making has a big impact on the company's actual bottom line. And so having information about that, that corporate culture, how people are feeling, whether or not they feel they can speak up safely or not, has a big impact on the bottom line. I think this is such an important connection that doesn't always get made in 
a sort of capitalistic <laughs> approach to business where we're only thinking about the product or the service. But these environments, these cultures, how employees feel at work personally and emotionally is a contributing factor to those products and services. I don't know that people always make that connection, but it's an important one. Yeah, absolutely. I can even see it in in something as basic as the student projects in my class. Usually when I'm watching, I have students make educational videos. And at the end, I can pretty much guess what the process was that went into making these videos, which is their product, whether they worked well as a team, whether they did all of their work separately and met in one time at the end. It's very visible in the product in the end. And it's funny to me reading their group reflections, how accurate it is, just that connection between process and outcome. And particularly for employers nowadays, especially with millennials and Gen Z coming into the workforce, our generations care, I think, more than ever about what our experience in the workplace is, what the meaning of our work is, the connections we're forming with others. And so I think this will continue to become more important as these generations age into the workforce. So we're drawing this really important connection between my personal experience in the workplace and what I'm able to produce or what my team is able to produce and then what the company is able to produce, whatever that is, a good or a service or whatever else. So let's talk about what we know voice is important. What can negatively impact voice in the workplace? So what are the factors that constrict it or make employees feel less safe to speak up about anything. Mm -hmm. So just in terms of the characteristics of the workplace environment, you already hit on one that's really important, and that's psychological safety. So people have to feel that it's safe to take risks in the organization, to put themselves out there. Otherwise, they're going to be less inclined to speak up because they're going to feel like maybe that'll come back on me. I'll get more negative evaluations from my leader. Maybe I'll get excluded from the group just in a purely social way. There's lots of ways in which speaking up can actually have negative consequences for the person doing the voicing, even though that voice is really important for the success of the organization. And the other thing that research shows really impacts people's willingness to voice is whether they think it will make a difference. So even if I feel that I'm in a safe environment, I could speak up without it having negative personal consequences for me, if it's not going to matter and my leaders are just going to ignore what I have to say, why take that even small risk of speaking up? And so to the extent that leaders can encourage feelings of safety and also feelings that they are actually responding to the feedback they're getting from employees, employees are going to be more likely to speak up and, and share those important pieces of information with leaders. And so the norms within the culture of the organization have a big impact on both of those things. One thing that can be a big killer for psychological safety in the organization is interpersonal mistreatment, like rudeness towards colleagues, incivility, gender and racial and other forms of microaggressions or like slights that are related to someone's identity on one of those dimensions are all big killers because they just they insinuate it's not a safe culture. If people are willing to be rude to one another in a daily basis, who knows what could happen if you 
put yourself out there and put eyes on you by saying a new idea. And I want to talk a little bit more about microaggressions because you and I have talked before about the impact that they have on a workplace culture and on teams. Your research shows something really interesting that I think might be surprising to some people, which is that microaggressions negatively impact everyone, even if you personally are not the target or the recipient of that slight or that discrimination or that behavior. So even if I observe someone else being mistreated and it doesn't have anything to do with me or even with my identity, I still become less likely to feel safe to speak up in the workplace. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a study that I've been working on. I'm submitting it for publication soon, hopefully the end of this month. And what we were looking at was the impact of different forms of this interpersonal mistreatment on how safe people feel in the workplace and as a result, how much they're willing to speak up. And we did, in fact, find we looked at this amongst white employees, Latina employees, Asian employees, and Black employees. And what we find is that racial microaggressions harm feelings of psychological safety among employees from all of those different backgrounds. So even though it might be targeted a single identity group, for instance, we saw an uptick in anti Asian racial microaggressions during COVID-19, when they were being unfortunately associated with the pandemic, the impact of witnessing that happen to someone else also negatively impacts others in the environment. Because employees are constantly looking at what happens to other people in the environment to figure out what the norms are, what's acceptable behavior for me in this environment, what are the consequences going to be if I take a certain course of action. And so seeing how other people are treated is a really valuable piece of information that people use to form an expectation for how they will be treated in the future. I also think that these small slights, because they might seem small or because people might be worried about speaking up about them because of the environment that they create, then they slowly infect the whole culture and the whole environment. And leaving them unaddressed just compounds the problem for teams and for companies. Can you talk a little bit, Amelia, about women in particular, the stereotypes the assumptions that are made about women that make workplaces particularly challenging for them? So women are generally socialized to be warm and communal, whereas men tend to be socialized to be more agentic, competitive. And in a lot of workplaces today, there's still an environment of competitiveness and a perception of leadership as requiring this more agentic, typically masculine touch. And so women are kind of in this double bind where on the one hand, they can act like what people perceive a leader to be more agentic, more competitive, really putting yourself out there, but they're at risk of getting backlash from people because they're not behaving in the way that people might expect women to behave more communal, kind of getting people together, less competitive. 
On the other hand, if they do act in this more communal way, sometimes it's perceived as inconsistent with leadership. She doesn't have vision. She doesn't have the drive or the purpose that's required to be a good leader. And so women are often walking this tightrope where on the one side, you know, they can behave more in line with their gender, but inconsistent with people's leadership expectations, or they can behave with consistent with leadership expectations and face backlash. So researchers call this the double bind, that women are always kind of navigating these conflicting norms about what appropriate behavior is for them in the workplace. And so as we rethink in a modern era what leadership looks like, I'm hopeful that this will open up freedom for women to express leadership in a variety of different ways. And research shows that women tend to be more attracted to organizations that have more of a collaborative culture as opposed to dog-eat-dog competitive culture. And I think that that is probably good for all types of minoritized individuals who do tend to be more communal just because of the fact that they've had to navigate more of these hierarchical restrictions and organizations. I'm also wondering, and this might be more a personal opinion rather than a research-backed opinion, but when we're talking about microaggressions and other things that we observe in the workplace, sometimes it's just not a safe space to address it and we have to protect ourselves, right? Emotionally and professionally and personally. But sometimes we do just have to say something, even if we're existing in an environment that isn't welcoming to that. Because if no one says anything, then it just keeps happening, right? What do we need to speak up anyway? I think something that can be an obstacle to people speaking up sometimes is that they don't feel it's their place or they don't have standing to say something because it didn't affect them, especially, you know, if you're not the direct target of a microaggression or you're an ally, it's not an issue that would directly affect you. But what we know about culture and norms and organizations is that everyone's behavior goes into forming that norm. And so even if it isn't directly impacting you, how you respond to a microaggression, whether or not you find it to be acceptable or not, whether you ignore it and keep it moving or feel like you need to address it, immediately shapes the norms for what's acceptable in that environment. And so all of us, regardless of our demographic identities or our rank in the company hierarchy, we have a role to play in disrupting toxic norms when those negative interactions are occurring. Research shows that confronting someone who has made an inappropriate remark is effective. It reduces their bias against whatever the target group was and reduces the chance they'll repeat the behavior in the future. But I also recognize that, that can be very stressful, especially if the person who engaged in the inappropriate comment is above you in the hierarchy. If they're your boss and maybe they could have power over your outcomes in the future. And so allyship can take many forms, not just an immediate call out of that person. I prefer calling in of people to calling out because no one wants to feel like a bad person. And so focusing on growth, I think being a good-ish person the best you can each day and improving each day is more effective as a call-in strategy for getting people to change their behavior going forward. I think this is also really hopeful because 
it can be easy in a large organization, especially to think my behavior cannot possibly make a difference. (laughs) We're talking about longstanding norms and stereotypes and assumptions. And I think one of those longstanding assumptions is one person in a company of a hundred, a thousand cannot make a difference. But I think just as we can die by a thousand tiny cuts, we can build by a thousand tiny bricks, a thousand tiny positive interactions, redirections. So speaking up, exercising our voice is a huge part of that. Amelia, what are some other ways as individuals that we can positively change or positively impact a company culture? I love that metaphor, building it back through a thousand tiny bricks, because it does really speak to how Culture happens everywhere. It happens in our own minds and how we think about ourselves and others. It happens in our interactions every day with other people, as well as, you know, those bigger top of the hierarchy organization level bureaucratic decisions. And so since we're interacting with people every day, we are building that culture every day and we can build a more positive culture through our interactions. And one really great tool It's been identified by Dr. Liz Tenney, who's also in my department at the DESB. She's wonderful. You should interview her next. (laughs) It's something called amplification. So when you amplify someone else's idea, you hear what they said and you repeat it again and endorse it for the rest of the group. And this is something that was used very effectively by female staffers in the Obama administration, where they noticed that in meetings women's voices and women's suggestions were kind of being drowned out in this like broader group interaction. And so they started when one of them would make a suggestion, at least one, sometimes two other of them would endorse it and say, yeah, that's a good idea. I think we should talk about that more. And what Liz's research shows is that amplifying someone else's idea is good for both the amplifier and the amplified. So when I amplify someone else, when I lift up their ideas so we're paying more attention to the voices of the marginalized in the organization, other people perceive me to be more competent and higher status and that other person to be more competent and higher status. So it's not a zero-sum game. When we lift up other people, it benefits us as well and makes us look like a team player that's supportive of our peers and colleagues. I think this is also such an important mindset change. Because in a corporate culture, it can often be a zero-sum game, like you're saying. And if I don't get the credit for an idea, then I've lost out somehow. So amplifying their idea instead of saying, oh no, I think we should do this instead, that requires a mindset shift. But you can just imagine what a great experience it would be to work in an environment that is supportive and the wins are shared. Everyone feels like they're contributing in a successful way. Absolutely. And research shows that those types of inclusive environments, you're more likely to get that important voice from employees. You're going to be more likely to have creative and innovative problem solving 
because you're just getting more information on the table, more diverse inputs when people are willing to raise their voices and make positive suggestions for the organization. So especially in the economy now where so much of the American economy is knowledge-based and technology-based, this is more important than it's ever been. So diversity can be a challenge for the same reason that it can be an innovative powerhouse. You have different perspectives and different sources of information involved in your decision-making process. And so you can get more creativity and innovation if you have a culture that facilitates that open sharing where people feel like they'll be supported, even if they take a bit of a risk in making a new suggestion. But on the other hand, if it's not a culture that's conducive to that open sharing, those different points of view can create negative conflict, personal conflict between people that's more harmful than helpful. So talk a little bit, Amelia, about from the leadership level, what kind of behavior needs to be modeled? What do leaders need to do to create that environment that does help diversity thrive and that does translate diversity into positive outcomes for people and for the business? Yeah, I think there's two big things leaders can do. And one is look at where your diversity is. Because just putting bodies on the field is insufficient to, like you said, leverage the innovative potential of those diverse employees. And so if all of your diversity is in the low level of the company where there's not a lot of influence on what goes on in the rest of the organization. And the rest of the company is very highly homogenous and they're the boss telling all of the people that are bringing diversity what to do. You've kind of recreated that hierarchy that exists out in society again within your workplace. And so it's not just having diverse employees, but it's also thinking about how are we creating equity in this organization? Does everyone have a seat at the table when it comes to decision-making? How can we value the perspectives of our diverse employees and reflect that in our higher-level decision-making? And the other thing I think leaders can do is, even though culture is created by everyone, that's absolutely true, leaders are disproportionately influential over the culture of a company because they're the model. And so employees look to you to set what the norms should be. What are we trying to do here, even if we're not successful every single day? And so when there is inevitably a a difficult incident related to diversity, leaders have a real opportunity to shift what the norms are and define what the norms are for everyone else. And so I've got some initial research suggesting that when leaders apologize, even on behalf of someone else. They didn't even engage in the uncivil remark. They just heard about it. When a leader apologizes on behalf of someone else, that can really help to repair some of that harm that has gone on in light of the remark to other employees in the company by signaling what type of company we're trying to be here. Well, Amelia, we've been talking today a lot about workplaces as a whole and experiences in a broad sense, what individuals can do, what companies can do to create safe environments that foster voice. Lots of great advice and things to think about for all of us. But on a more personal level, I would love to hear from you. What advice do you wish you had 
when you started your career or what advice would you give to women who are preparing to enter the workforce today? Hmm. I think two pieces of advice, one that's rather personal and one that's a little more practical. The first is that especially for women and people from groups that haven't historically been represented in leadership positions, know that it's very normal to feel like an imposter, feeling like you're not right for the job and it was a mistake that they hired you and one day they're going to find out. When I first started as a professor, I just remember feeling a lot of disjuncture between my identity as a queer woman who I call myself like a Lady Gaga gay, like I love glitter and I love sparkles. And like, now I'm going into this corporate world that's like very serious, does not have sparkles anywhere. (laughs) And at first, I just I didn't know how to reconcile those things. I also had to like hold authority and I had never seen anyone wearing sparkly clothes hold authority before. I feel like I had to do some personal work to disrupt those stereotypes in my own mind and see myself as belonging in that environment and forming my own cocoon and finding an older woman in the organization to mentor me were really essential in kind of reshaping my identity as a leader to be consistent with my other personal identities. So I just want to normalize that experience for anyone who has had it out there. My other piece of advice is particularly for women and underrepresented minorities, we're the people that often leaders come to when they want to start a DEI initiative, to start a committee on diversity, equity, and inclusion, or think about what that might look like in the workplace. And I would challenge you to, when they ask you to do that, push back and ask what resources and support they're going to give to that effort. Because it's very easy for someone to give your time to that effort, but not actually back it up with significant resources and support from the organization. And if the organization is not actually backing it up with resources, the initiative is probably not going to be very successful. So don't be afraid to push back a little bit and say no and protect your time if it looks like what they're asking you to do is window dressing that won't help you or anyone else. Two great pieces of advice. Amelia, thank you so much for being with us here today, sharing your research and also your personal experiences with us. I appreciate it so much. Thank you, Francis. This was a wonderful conversation. I appreciate you inviting me today. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Eccles Business Buzz podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode exploring the experiences of women in the workplace and how more diverse companies and communities can help us all develop a little more empathy. I hope you'll join us. Don't forget to subscribe to Eccles Business Buzz wherever you listen to podcasts and go ahead and leave us a rating and a review too. You can also follow us at Eccles Alumni for all the latest news from your Eccles Alumni Network. Until next time, Eccles Business Buzz is a production of the David Eccles School of Business and is produced by University FM.